Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Fire is the, the great shaper of pretty much everything that happens in forests. And it's just hard intuitively for people to think about an area with a bunch of dead trees as being a part of ecological resilience and as being good for biodiversity. Contemporary science is integrating what indigenous science learned about beneficial fire management over thousands of years of observation and trial and error. This could signal the end to our misguided policy of fire suppression and the beginning of fire-resilient communities with a new relationship to one of nature's most elemental and fearful forces. I'm Neil Harvey. This is Nature's Phoenix, Fire as Medicine, with fire ecologist Chad Hansen and Frank Kanawa Lake. When Europeans first arrived in California, they thought they'd found a luxuriantly fertile and abundant wilderness, a cornucopia of diversity and plenty. They paused to rest in verdant open lawns amid wide groves of large oak trees. For miles and miles, it looked as if it was planted like a fine English garden. There was little undergrowth except for the thriving herbs, wild oats, and high grasses. An entire plain was covered with giant swatches of rose, yellow, scarlet, orange, and blue flowers in distinct communities. To the Europeans, this was obviously a wilderness, the natural state of grace of a blissfully undisturbed land. These newcomers could not have been more wrong. If you leave forests alone, you don't get forests that look like natural parks or huge meadows or endless expanses of flowers. What the Europeans encountered was in fact a vast cultivated landscape, carefully tended consciously and superbly managed by the indigenous peoples who had been living there for generations. They skillfully affected the health and well-being of the greater web of life, and in turn, enhanced their own place within it. Europeans saw Native Americans as environmentally inconsequential, living off the fat of the land. They especially frowned upon their addiction to burning the land, and soon they made laws against it. Turns out that native peoples had good reason to burn. They understood fire as key to optimizing the vitality and abundance of the landscape. Fire is the, the great shaper of pretty much everything that happens in forests. And it's just hard intuitively for people to think about an area with a bunch of dead trees as being a part of ecological resilience and as being good for biodiversity. It's an education effort, especially when we've had decades of publicly funded advertising from the U.S. Forest Service, you know, uh, Smokey the Bear telling people that fire destroys forests. You know, people think of fire in the forest the same way they think about fire with regard to their house. Fire burns your house, it's destroyed. Fire burns in the forest, they think it's destroyed too. But what the science is telling us is that it couldn't be farther from the truth. Chad Hansen is a Ph.D. fire ecologist and co-founder of the John Muir Project, an organization dedicated to the ecological management of U.S. federal public forest lands. 
Hansen is an innovative leader in reframing the ecological role of wildfire and educating the public about different approaches. In 2015, the rough fire in California's Sierra Nevada mountains made national news. It was the peak of high-intensity fires ripping through California amidst a multi-year drought. When the flames threatened to engulf a thousand-year-old giant sequoia redwood grove in Kings Canyon National Park, firefighters made desperate and dangerous efforts to protect the grove. As the flames raged, many fire ecologists, including Hansen, told people that although it seemed counterintuitive, the fire was the best thing that could happen to the ancient tree grove, that within a few years it would lead to spectacular regeneration. Various tree species depend on fire in order to effectively reproduce. Giant sequoias, for example, they have uh, cones that uh, are called serotonous. What that means is they've got these very, very thick resins that the seeds are encased in. And basically, they need fire that's pretty hot in order to melt those resins and the cones release the seeds. And basically, fire that takes all that duff and litter on the forest floor, the twigs and branches and needles, and turns it into this very, very nutrient-rich bed of, of ash that helps germination. And so after fires, you get this spectacular regeneration of giant sequoias. These giant sequoia groves hadn't burned in more than a century, and we've been essentially loving them to death, thinking that we were protecting them by keeping fire out. Of course, we're seeing 10,000, 50,000 giant sequoia seedlings per acre. Chad Hansen has had a lifelong relationship with forests. His parents had an old log cabin in the eastern Sierra Nevada where he spent his childhood summers. Then his love of forests got transformed as the personal became political. I started getting involved in forest conservation work after I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada with my older brother in 1989 and started seeing all the clear cuts on national forest lands by the time we hit the northern Sierra Nevada and then even more so in the central and north Cascades in Oregon and Washington. And I was shocked because I didn't realize that there was logging on national forests. I was 22 years old at the time. I thought national forests were like national parks. I thought they were all protected. I was just absolutely stunned by the scale of the deforestation, scale of the habitat loss. And I realized that what I thought were these vast, limitless, wild forests were actually being lost at a pace that I, I couldn't even comprehend. Horrified by the wholesale destruction, Chad Hansen decided to look into the realities behind logging projects. He discovered the timber industry was often justifying its vast clear-cuts in recently burned woodlands as forest restoration. The companies claimed charred forests had no ecological value. They said their logging would have no negative impact. In 2002, Hansen's organization, the John Muir Project, worked with the Center for Biological Diversity to file a lawsuit against such a project in the El Dorado National Forest in the central Sierra Nevada. When his team won a partial injunction, he set out on a site visit to verify that the Forest Service was complying. He also wanted to check on a spotted owl nest in a stand of old-growth trees. There was a logging crew I had to pass in order to get there, so they had to stop what they were doing. I ended up getting a conversation with them, with the foreman of the logging crew, and he said, you know, I, I can understand why you guys don't want us to cut that stand of green trees down there. You know, those trees are alive. But this area we're cutting here, all these trees were killed. What harm could possibly come of it? What wildlife species could possibly use this? 
And I thought that was a fascinating question. It was 2002. I did not have an answer for him. And, and so I started looking into it. Hansen learned that the concept of a burned-out hellscape couldn't be further from the truth. Areas that burn hot actually allow the ecological system to renew and regenerate itself. Fire, at a variety of intensities, is critical to the survival of many other tree species, as well as to a vast range of plants, animals, and insects that thrive on post-fire habitat and together compose the symphony of biodiversity that defines a healthy forest. The dead trees attract what are called uh, wood-boring beetles. These are species that are native in these forests and they've evolved over millennia receptors in their bodies to detect the heat or the smoke from fires from dozens of miles away. So they'll make a beeline for the fire and they'll arrive even before the smoke is cleared in many cases. And they lay their eggs on the bark of a fire-killed tree and the larvae develop and they bore under the bark and that's where they live. They have the protection and the food they need to develop. The woodpeckers, like the blackback woodpecker, depend upon those beetle larvae. And so they need a lot of dead trees in order to have enough food to survive. Dead trees are a little bit softer than live trees, so the woodpeckers excavate nest cavities in the dead trees. They create new ones every single year. And all the other cavities that they create are available for secondary cavity nesting species to use. These are species that need cavities to survive but can't create their own, so bluebirds, nuthatches, flying squirrels. Many, many, many different species of birds and mammals need these cavities, and so blackback woodpeckers uh, and other woodpecker species, we call them keystone species because they create homes for all these other wildlife species. And the flowering shrubs attract flying insects. The flying insects provide food for fly-catching birds and bats. Those shrubs provide food for deer and elk. A lot of them are berry producing. The black bears get fat on those before the, the winter, so it allows them to hibernate. And it's great habitat for small mammals. Creates great hunting grounds for species like uh, spotted owls. And so what you have is this very rich and colorful system that's created by fire. That habitat, what we call snag forest habitat, technically uh, called complex early seral forest, that's actually comparable to old growth forest in terms of native biodiversity and wildlife abundance. And it all comes down to the habitat structures that are created by intense fire. We now know that fire-adapted ecosystems actually need fire to thrive, like the phoenix rising from the ashes. For people, one of the most complex challenges is the differential between human time and nature's deep time. Giant sequoia groves operate in deep time, with life cycles extending across millennia, a long view indeed. How can we understand and analyze natural systems that function on timescales that so greatly surpass our own living or cultural memory? Humans live on a very short time frame relative to the life of a forest. And so we need to understand these processes on a much longer time scale and understand that some of these essential processes that are, that are critical for biodiversity and for ecological resilience may seem strange or scary to us from a human perspective, and they may not have occurred in our lifetimes, but that doesn't mean they're unnatural. 
When we return, more from Chad Hansen on how policy is catching up with deep time ecology, and Frank Kanawa Lake explores the intimate relationships among fire, forests, and human culture from an indigenous science perspective. This is Nature's Phoenix, Fire as Medicine. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. To explore all available Bioneers radio shows, podcasts, and video programming, please visit Bioneers.org. Humility is our constant companion as we realize how little we really know and how little control we have over an unpredictable and incomprehensibly complex living nature. Restoration is largely a new science, and we've never before faced the scale of destruction now confronting us. Fortunately, an unprecedented coming together of different knowledge systems is unfolding rapidly in real time that can give us the insights and tools to bring ecological restoration into full flower just when it's needed most. Indigenous peoples around the world have been observing and actively participating in these processes for millennia for both material and spiritual sustenance. For First Peoples, the quest is both technical and cosmological. And so when we talk about traditional fire knowledge, if you're a forest-dependent people as an indigenous community or a fire-adapted culture, that every aspect of your culture relies upon fire in some beneficial way, then you have a depth of knowledge, old-time knowledge, that's part of that traditional ecological knowledge that spans all the biophysical with all the metaphysical. So you have both the physical elements of it and you have the spirituality or the ceremonial aspects that really combine together. Dr. Frank Kanawa Lake is a research ecologist with the USDA Forest Service, an indigenous scientist of Karuk, Seneca, Cherokee, and Mexican ancestry. He serves as chair of the Traditional Ecological Knowledge Section of the Ecological Society of America. He works in the Fire and Fuels Program of the Pacific Southwest Research Station in the Klamath-Siskiyou bioregion. Dr. Frank Lake has conducted extensive research into questions around wildlands fire, fuels management, and climate change in relation to tribal communities. Indigenous fire management is a highly developed science, utilizing indigenous methods that work to sustain cultural landscapes, ecosystems, and people. You have, at the time of, of settlement in the West, you essentially have tribal people using fire to augment or to, if lightning wasn't striking and burning the areas, then tribal people said, well, this area does better or is more productive, has more diversity of plants and animals, yields more water, so they were using fire to promote that. Tribes literally used fire from the coast to the highest alpine meadows. And part of that, which often people didn't associate or understand, was it was both that natural and cultural fire use 
that led to a lot of the diversity that was marveled at and was really seen as part of the pristine West. If you see fire as medicine, which is a good thing for the landscape, a good thing for your family health, and you use it frequently to consistently prescribe it at the right frequency, the right seasonality, the right intensity, and even at the right scale or extent, then you're managing a lot of diversity from materials that really, from a tribal cultural perspective, provide your foods, your medicines, your materials, and that landscape is really tied to fire being your pharmacy, your supermarket, your hardware store, and for some sacred places, your church. And if there's a link between pile diversity or fire diversity and that of all those ecosystem services, then the picture I want to paint is think about fire as being the main leveraging thing so you get the right dose of it. And you want to be able to have food as medicine and food's healthy for you. You need to have access to clean quantity, quality of water, and fire can provide that. Seeing fire as medicine has long shaped Frank Kanawa Lake's work as a research scientist. From childhood in the Siskiyou Wilderness in far northern California, he was raised with the cultural beliefs and knowledge systems of indigenous worldviews. His life and the lives of his family and tribe revolved around the Pacific coast and the forests along the Klamath River. His father and stepmother frequently participated in ceremonies and traditional healing practices. They relied on local medicinal plants, gathered acorns and huckleberries, and fished seasonally for sustenance. Lake's desire to become an environmental scientist was rooted in the unique training he received at sacred sites. He was also compelled by the experience of his community working to maintain its land tenure and traditional way of life. His people won hard-fought battles to protect sacred sites from logging and to regain their traditional fishing rights. And so I had really this duality of seeing natural resource and political issues around river fisheries conservation, but then also that around forest and biodiversity and sacred site, interest in conservation. And that really heavily influenced me as a young person, seeing the struggles and those dynamics and feeling like, what is the solution? And I think part of my training at those sacred places and through those subsistence activities was I am inheriting knowledge, but with that knowledge is a responsibility to both family, land and waters, and community. That means both the human and biological community. Frank Lake felt he could play a valuable role as a translator and bridge builder among federal land managers and tribal communities. One of the obstacles was, well, first they have to learn about Indian people. They have to see that they're just not something of the past. They have to understand both as an instructor or as a land manager that these are living communities who depend upon the river, depend upon the forest, depend upon that biodiversity, and now we call the ecosystem services to perpetuate their traditions, and that really what is a tribal trust resource is also in the best interest of society as a public trust resource. A crucial obstacle Lake wanted to dissolve was the centuries-long policy of fire suppression based on the belief that fires destroy forests and should be prevented at all costs. If forests are valuable only as board feet of lumber, which has been the driving view of the U.S. Forest Service since its beginning, then anything damaging a tree is lost revenue. That mentality has fostered a policy of putting out every blaze and restricting local land management rights. And it's no coincidence that policy happens to serve the vested interests that profit from fire suppression. 
So back between 1910 and 1920 in that period in the West and across the nation, there was a big debate both academically and I think policy-wise of what they called the fallacy of light burning or um, there was kind of a derogatory term called pipe forestry, which was, you know, Indians are burning to manage a range of diversity and resources. Some of those who had the timber interest didn't want the burning to happen because it was affecting the forest and they wanted to grow trees, which was a national economic interest. And so on the heels of what became some bad fire seasons and some loss of life, there became a strong emphasis on fire suppression. That was one of the mechanisms that really began to limit the extent and the application of tribal people in using fire. But there was also, even going back to the time of the Spanish and the missions, the first law enacted in California was by a mission was to prevent the natives from burning. Well, here's tribal people living on the landscape. They use fire as a tool. If we want to colonize and settle that same land and utilize the same resources, then we have to figure out a way essentially to take care of the Indian and fire problem. To many people today, it may seem as if we're experiencing more fires than ever. But in fact, because we've been putting out as many fires as possible for the past century or more, forests are actually burning less often at all levels of intensity. According to Chad Hansen, this is true even when we factor climate change into the equation. So he's educating policymakers and the public about the fire deficit, advocating for more wildfire rather than less. It's definitely a marketing challenge in the face of a deeply embedded Western view that fire is an exclusively destructive force to be controlled at all costs. Yet at the same time, fire really is an existential threat for the 99 million people in the U.S. who are at risk because their homes have encroached into what's called the wildlands urban interface zone. While Chad Hansen strongly advocates for letting large backcountry fires burn, he's clear-eyed about public safety. He says we can learn to let fire have its way while also taking smart, effective measures to protect homes. You know, right now, we're still rooted in a sort of a 20th century, even a late 19th century model where the fire issue is out there somewhere. It's over the ridge or over the next ridge. And right now, land management is geared on fire suppression uh, certainly some of that is spent, you know, next to communities and in communities when fire is close, but, you know, the majority is still spent in, in relatively remote backcountry forests. We need to be focusing our resources on protecting communities and making sure that people's homes don't burn when fires do occur. Because the fact is, is that this is not just a decision we can make, let's have less fire. Fires are going to happen. We can't stop fire in these forests. They're going to occur. And so, I think we need to focus on defensible space work, which is really within 100 feet of individual structures. Make sure those structures are, are protected so we can allow fire to do its important, ecologically beneficial work in the forest. Most uh, homes don't burn in high-intensity fires. They actually burn in low-intensity fires. The great majority of homes that burn in forest fires burn in fires that creep along right up to the, the house and burn the house down. Back in Northern California, Frank Lake has been working to support collaborations across agencies, NGOs, homeowners, and tribes to collectively transform our understanding of the role of managed fire in the landscape. Working together with agency and tribal support, community members engage in prescribed burning to create defensible space around homes and properties. The goal is to support a shift from immediate suppression towards a path that allows backcountry wildfires to burn. It's also a healing return to ancient ways, 
using traditional fire in a contemporary context. As an example of what could be achieved through collective community effort, Frank Lake arranged a controlled burn of his own property. It took a lot of hazardous fuels reduction. It took working with the Fire Safe Council. It took getting my neighbors on board to that point to then where we all came together and said, our objective today is on this piece of ground, using traditional fire in a contemporary context to achieve multiple resource objectives. And for me, it was having my son, who was four years old, with the burn boss, who's technically qualified, and a, a little boy who feels responsible to his acorn trees, that he's inherited that cultural responsibility for stewardship. And we burned. We also achieved some acorn research on the bugs for my UC Berkeley student. We improved the egress route between my neighbors and my property, and I helped restore the oaks. And so my evaluation of fire effects was that nearly every acorn I got under my trees across five to seven acres had relatively very few filbert weevil mods. And yet, when I listen to the woodpeckers, the jays, the squirrels, the bear, the deer sign, everything's telling me that place was good fire, complete down to the acorns I'd put in front of the woodstove before I boogie down here. Now, if I could demonstrate that on my home, achieving those multiple objectives for community safety, for resource enhancement, for food security, intergenerational learning, then I want that to be something that then is emulated and spread through our community about truly being a fire-dependent, fire-adapted person at your family to your community level. As we face the rising wave of unnatural disasters caused by centuries of land mismanagement and the absence of a land ethic, one of our best hopes is that today we have both traditional wisdom and modern science to help us learn again to lovingly and patiently attune our hands to the heartbeat of the land. Thanks to the decades of research, advocacy, and communication from visionaries such as Frank Lake and Chad Hansen, our societal doors of perception are beginning to swing open. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Teo Grossman. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Producer, Teo Grossman. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Program engineer, Emily Harris. Additional music was made available by Rich Goodhart at richgoodhart.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations.